Susan, and I have with me here today our podcast co-host, Simon. Hello, I'm Simon. Um, And welcome to Story Conversations. Um, We have with us today uh, Dr. Mary Fassell, who's a tenured professor at Johns Hopkins University, who, um, who focuses on teaching the social history of medicine. And we were really interested to have a conversation with Mary because of her work incorporating story, not only in the academic research and work that she does, uh, but also in her artistic life as a, 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 an artist in metal. And it's, I, I, we're really looking forward to a fascinating story around story. It's a great conversation, yeah. Yes. Um, we're thrilled uh, to welcome Dr. Mary Fussell to join us today, PhD professor at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, researching and teaching classes on the history of medicine, specifically the social and cultural history. But she leads a double life as a metal artist. So we're looking forward to hearing the story about what you call your life in metal. So can we, we start, Mary, with, um, I guess, your backstory? You know, how have you found yourself... Um, an academic specifically focused around the history of medicine. Let's start there. Well, you know, I think it's always a bit of an accident. Um, Few people end up where they thought they were going to be. I went to college thinking that I was going to be a doctor. But the more that I, the closer that I got, the less I thought I really wanted to do that. And so I sort of on a whim, I applied to one graduate school, one program, because they said they did social history. And I thought, oh, that's, that's what I want to do. And then I got in and I got funding and I thought medicine's going to have to wait. You know, this is what I really love. Despite the fact of being told there are no jobs, which was true, which was true. I was very fortunate to succeed and get a position. And... I love the history of medicine because like everybody gets born, everybody gets sick, everybody dies. It's a pretty universal. (laughs) I'm not so interested in physicians. I'm interested in living in the body and what that means to us and how we live in the body. So I found it to be a really good subject for me because it's so broad. And I like teaching undergrads who are going to be physicians. There's tons of pre-meds at Hopkins and you know, my sort of stealth focus is humility, that, you know, we don't know everything, we're not gonna know everything, (laughs) and, you know, get used to it. Um, But I like telling stories in lectures. And so, you know, I I can, I can smuggle humility in, I think, most of the time. And you have a particular era and place that you're focused on 17th and 18th century England as a topic. And, and storytelling is a big part of that. How do you weave all that? To, well, let's start with why why that specific mm-hmm. time period? Well, when I was in grad school, I was um, strongly urged to work on America. And I was like, I don't want to write on anything where I say we. I'm not interested in that. What we are we talking about? Um, just not what I wanted. And I wanted to travel. And one of my colleagues in graduate school did his research um, researching mental institutions in the Midwest. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a Europeanist. Mm -hmm. Check, got that. (laughs) You know, (laughs) that's not the research trip I imagine. So um, England, I mean, in some ways it's easy. It's such a, um, it's a cognate, it's it's English. I can read English just fine, thank you. Um, But I was also interested in the way that so much of... um, you know, a lot of American life grows out of the English colonial experience. 
And I love the 17th and 18th centuries because they're both like and unlike today. At heart, I'm an anthropologist. I'm interested in culture and how people do and what they think. And in the time period I study, I'll be reading a source, you know, something somebody wrote back then. And I'll be reading along and it's all sort of making sense to me. And I'm like, oh yeah, right, uh-huh. And then I'll turn the page and I'll say something and I'll just be like, how oh, what? You think what? And I think that that, I think that that moment of unfamiliarity is really productive as a historian. Um, I can give you an example. One of my favorite examples of this is there's a very well-known diary by a 17th century clergyman, and he was sort of Puritan, and they tended to write a lot. They sort of wanted to make sure they were good with God, and they kind of went over their life really carefully, and so it's great for us historians, right? It's got full full of detail. And so there's this heartrending, heartrending moment when one of his young sons dies and he's sort of reckoning in his journal and he wonders if his son died because he had been playing chess too much and it angered God. And God was trying to get him back on the straight and narrow where he should be. And that moment, I mean, that just is heartrending, absolutely heartrending. But it's that moment where you're like, oh, I don't understand this man at all. I need to think again. I need to kind of get inside that head in a different way. And that, I think those moments of unfamiliarity, of not today, are what I find so appealing about the time period. And yet, there's enough people writing about themselves that you do have that feeling of connectedness that you sort of understand some of what they're doing. So it's that position like between the familiar and the unknown I find as a historian really productive. That's amazing. That's that's really amazing. Um, yeah, and, you know, you've written a number of papers and books about the relationship between people and the stories they created, as you say, to make sense of their worlds. Uh, of course, I have a, you know, an interesting perspective on life. So I was fascinated when I was looking at a lot of your work about a paper that you wrote um, when you were a fellow at Princeton called Imagining Vermin in the 17th century England. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. Okay, so rats, they're villainous, and they do prompt stories of genuine disgust. But why did humans need to tell this story about vermin? I mean, about rats. And I mean, how did you, well, never, how did you get there? <laughs> how did I get there? Well, I now joke, if you want to be a world authority, it's easy. Just pick your topic. <laughs> I never intended to be the world authority on early modern vermin, I can tell you that. Um, you know, I was doing work on the history of animals, um, and I'm not... I think animals are good to think with. I'm not an animal lover. I don't have pets. As you know, Susan, I grew up in a family where everybody else loved pets. We had pets. You know, I just missed the gene somehow. I don't get it. I'm like, what is that animal doing in the house? Why is it here? So, you know, my bad, right? Um, my character flaw. But I do think animals are really interesting to think with because it's us and them, you know, and I think the us and them can model at various times different ethnicities, parents and children, gender. I think that that binary is really powerful. So when I was looking for a topic, I sort of stumbled across these um, little early modern, like how to keep away vermin books. And I was immediately captivated because they said things that like made no sense to me at all. You know, like 
like the practices that they thought would keep away bugs and 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 everything was really strange so you know that strange is the part that i gravitate to so of course i had to find out more i mean st stuff that they were doing even into the 19th century gamekeepers used to like catch vermin and then hang their bodies on a fence to like warn the other ones this might happen to them so stay away and that was like a serious practice and so we're like what you know that's not how that works but they thought it worked and so that is that's my starting point why did they think that work and so as i sort of began to think about like what are they telling me it became clear that although disgust is something we share in common us and them about this category of animal or being bugs count too what it is that qualifies something to be vermin has changed a lot over time and the key aspect in early modern England makes sense once you think about it they were the animals and bugs that were extra super clever and smart and could get human food no matter what humans did so foxes are like paramount you know the fox in the hen house is a real thing and foxes are clever and you can board up your chickens all kinds of ways and those foxes are going to find a way in so they almost personify vermin as being uncomfortably smart maybe a little too human except that they're not human and so I think that understanding that narrative then made sense of some of these unusual methods to try to get rid of them because if they're smart they're going to see that row of whatever they are is hanging up and they're going to they're going to understand what that means you know this is a dangerous place for us we better move on and so I just became really interested in the way what seems like a fixed category to us vermin is in fact not a fixed category at all and then when I gave the paper at Princeton, it was hilarious because one of the people in the audience said, oh yeah, I totally understand what you're saying because here in Princeton, deer are vermin because they're in the wrong place. They're eating my garden when they shouldn't be. And that was like a beautiful explication of what I was saying that that in fact, you know, they're, they're like it didn't matter what kind of fencing you put up, the deer were going to find a way in. They were, you know, we don't think of deer as particularly clever and I don't think it was the cleverness it was just the kind of this is an animal that's not in the right place that's damaging something of mine that that's still true some of the other aspects we don't believe anymore but um, but I had a lot of fun thinking through this very fundamental category that turns out to be historically changing I think it's really interesting the way we uh, we all uh, we all do it and it's this this the way we describe animals vermin with these characteristics and we assign characteristics mm -hmm. to them the way we the, the brain just wants to create a character mm -hmm. and i i'm not i'm not sure if i don't think it is a disneyfication or anything like that <laughs> you know that that is the binary but it is you know if if something disgusts us then if then it's automatically villainous it's dangerous mm -hmm. or it's dark or it's wily like you said with the fox mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. and that kind of starts to permeate through the, our relationship to those animals or beasts. Right. I think it's fascinating how we We how need we do to that. tell ourselves the story that somehow attaches human characteristics to something that's not human. Exactly, because then we can objects. understand it. You know, yeah. I mean, that's what stories do, right? They are... Um, they're a way of trying to interpret the world around you. They're, I think of them sometimes as like like a painting on theatrical scrim that you look through you hold it up to your world and you sort of look through it and see like does the painting help you understand what you're seeing you know it's see-through but does it help us 
well, yes, it does. And then that story sort of gets traction for how we think about the world. Um, they're not inert in any way. They're, they're an active thing that we use to understand. I, I love that way of thinking of it. <laughs> and particularly, and particularly at, at the idea that we would paint whatever we want to paint mm -hmm. on the scrim. So therefore, the story we're telling is the story that's inside our head in the first place. And I, you know, I always talk with, with a lot of clients, and Susan and I have discussed this many times. If you're not telling, actually you know, sharing a story that's powerful enough and clear enough, your audience is just going to make up a story that suits their world and suits their intention anyway. Um, so yeah, I love that description. So most recently, your work, um, and specifically your last book, Vernacular Bodies, addresses how ordinary people understood their bodies, particularly reproduction. And is it by looking at cheap print and how ideas, everyday ideas about reproduction led to large scale social change? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, I'm always interested in like the rest of the population, ordinary people, and they're harder for historians to find out about because obviously if you're rich and powerful, people save your papers when you die. It's automatically something considered important. Whereas if you're just an ordinary wood turner, that's a lot less likely. So, you know, I've been fascinated by thinking about the history, history of reproduction for a long time because it's all about gender relations for me. It seems very powerful. It seems powerfully apparent to me that when people are talking about making babies, they're talking about men and women and their relations. And so what I would really want is to like eavesdrop on conversations that are happening in birthing rooms hundreds of years ago, but obviously we can't do that. So I have to kind of find a way closer to that. And so what I did was use what I think of as the lowest common denominator of print sources. Everything from broadside ballads that are literally sold in the street as they're sold. So you don't even need to be able to read to hear these stories sung in the streets. I analyzed a deck of playing cards that had like cartoons on them about birth. There's a whole bunch of different sources like that. Little cheap pamphlets, witchcraft narratives, you name it. And I also read popular medical books that were intended for ordinary people. And through that, I was trying to get at something that was like what ordinary understandings of reproduction were. Um, it's a proxy at best. And what I was so excited about is that in some ways, like none of us really know what happens during reproduction, right? I mean, even today, a third of all causes of infertility, they have no idea. Medicine doesn't know why labor starts. They just don't know. They have no answer for that. So we still don't know a lot, but they didn't know a lot back then. And in some ways, like they have to make up stories to explain what they think is happening. You know, for me, the womb is like a little theater in which stuff is happening. They don't have any access to it. They don't have <laughs> scans. They don't have any of that stuff. And so they have to make up stories that are plausible, that make sense. And those stories come out of the fabric of their lived experience. And so in a deeply patriarchal society, big surprise, a lot of the stories are pretty patriarchal. And that tells us something. And I was interested in how these two massive changes, the Refor Protestant Reformation and then the English Civil War, both times of massive gender upheaval, how those upheavals were then sort of resonated or echoed, if you will, in the way people were thinking about how babies got made. And that, that these massive, huge changes could be understood and thought through, almost worked through in a psychoanalytic way, in thinking about 
gender relations and how babies got made. So essentially you wrote a sex book. Uh, sort of. I mean, the book I'm writing now is more of a sex book, to be honest. That was the baby's book. Um, there you but of go. Course, before contraception, the two, you know, they're together all the time. But, but so, um, yes. So these folks were closer to at least witnessing an agrarian society than we are today. You know, they didn't go out in the, the barnyard and kind of, they, they weren't stitching together with the, oh, yeah, that, yeah, I get that. What, what, what was going on? I love that you said that. Um, I call that the barnyard hypothesis. Um, <laughs> you literally just stated the barnyard hypothesis. Like, surely they saw horses and cows, put it in the bulls, they could figure it out. Um, the book I'm writing now is about the history of sex ed before sex ed, basically how people found out about this stuff in the past. And so the way I see it is most of us assume either the Barnard hypothesis, like they could figure it out, or, oh, everyone was approved, nobody talked about anything, nobody knew anything. And I'm like, neither of those is true. Um, in fact, people were really hungry for knowledge about how sex and reproduction worked, really hungry for it, and they consumed what they could get their hands on. One of my favorite stories, and there was very little available to them, so they would take whatever they could find. One of my favorite stories is um, a working-class kid growing up in the very late 19th century tells us how scripture class in school was actually really exciting when they got to Leviticus of all things because the little kiddies would be like fornication fornication <laughs> adultery like anything that could give them a little clue they were all on it they're sending little notes in class and stuff and you know that tells us something about how much people wanted to know how the body worked what was this sex thing and there was very little information so my current project is a cultural history of this one book that did talk about sex and babies in a way that was really accessible to ordinary people and I had you know, I have lots of stories of readers of it that make it clear this was a really desired thing that they really wanted to know. And so, you know, it is the sex book, um, for sure. Interesting. And do you think they wanted to know because they wanted to prevent conception or they wanted to just understand conception? Or, I mean, is there is there a thread there? Is there a story around or did they just kind of want to know? I think it's a mix. I think readers bring different things to the book. For some, I mean, it's supposed to be a book for married women. So for those women, it could be what to expect when you're expecting, because there's a lot about pregnancy and reproduction. There's conception, but there's also that part. So it could do that. I think there's definitely a kind of titillation factor. Um, I have a group of teenage boys I think they are who are in a coal mining town in the early 20th century and there's a secondhand book stall and has the book on it and the bookseller he's really clever he shows them one picture it has nothing like we would think of racy pictures it has pictures of like the development of the fetus but these were scarce in that culture they didn't have sex ed and the guy says "Ooh, there's more like this in the book and they club together all their money and they pool their funds and they buy the book. So that's about kind of teenage male curiosity about the female body that, you know, those of us who've reared sons, we've met this. We know what it looks like even today. Um, <laughs> believe me, it's not so different. Um, and so there's that kind of readership. Then I just discovered, I'm really excited. I mean, I didn't discover this. I found out, somebody else had found it out that um, this 
a lesbian woman in the early 19th century read the book that I'm working on because she wanted to know more about her clitoris. Who knew, right? She sort of wanted to understand the nature of her desire, which was not particularly well-liked or respected in the world that she lived in. So I think the book, I think people want to know all kinds of things about their bodies and how they worked. And we're very hungry for that kind of information. Interesting. Yeah. You you describe your experience as a writer as being that of a mark maker. Can you can you share what that means and, and what, what that idea? Tell us a little bit more about that idea. Well, I've only come to thinking about it that way since I've become an artist, which is, as I sometimes say, my other life in metal. So as I began to explore as I began to become an artist, basically, mark making is an artist's term for the process. It's exactly like what it says. And I realized that in some very deep fundamental level, um, I'm a child with a crayon and a blank piece of paper. That was like my favorite thing to do as a child was to draw and color and anything artistic. Loved, loved, loved it. And I think that that when I go back to that sort of psychically, for me, that mark, seeing that outside of me, taking what is in my mind and making it real in the world is just immensely thrilling. It's not so for everybody. Believe me, that's like my particular psychological makeup. But there's something incredibly validating for me about seeing the thing that was in my head on the paper. It just, it gives me a thrill. And so I came to understand that for me, making something in metal that I saw in my head and could then hold in my hand gave me this real charge, but that it wasn't so different to seeing my words on a page, like working through the research, thinking about what I wanted to say, finding the way to tell it so that other people could see what I saw, that those were both really analogous processes for me of taking something inside my mind that only I could imagine and then having it become real in some material way that for me that's the process and they're actually really similar even though they seem quite different mm. what what kind of metals are you working in um well I started off um training in a program that does jewelry and I quickly figured out that although I like to make pretty things and I give them as gifts to my friends a lot of times I'm really interested in making things that are more conceptual and there are more um, sort of commentary, I guess I'd say. Right now, oh, for a while now, I've been working on a series about the night they took the Confederate statues down in Baltimore. So as you probably know, um, many places in America have commemorated the com Confederacy for generations without really thinking about it. And in the last five years, it's become a thing rightfully so and so in Baltimore we have three maybe four of them and a hot August night three years ago the mayor had them taken down in the dark of night incredibly dramatic but the stone plinths these huge hunks of granite upon which they stood still remain and to me this is like the most powerful metaphor for the long-term legacy of chattel slavery and the subsequent Jim Crow era you know, they're gone, but they're not gone. So I call the series Absent Presence because that's exactly what it is. Um, it's gone, but not gone. And I'm exploring. And again, I'm, I'm in my very, you know, like I'm a beginner artist here. I'm trying to explore how to 
help people understand how to, how to make work that conveys this kind of being not being and the way that these things cast long shadows metaphorically shadows that we need to attend to like the work isn't done it's barely begun and how do we sort of say that um so that's that's the kind of work that i'm really excited about doing right and and no one ever raised a statue to particularly women enslaved women who contributed to the history the story Mm -hmm. of of how we moved from that 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 time into a more enlightened hopefully enlightened time um but you know that that notion of telling the story of enslaved women um kind of raises the issue of who has the the, we talk a lot these days about who has the right to tell a story Mm mm-hmm and it, I'm interested to understand that within absent presences, where the shadows that are cast um, are not of the Confederate uh, personas that have been taken down, but rather the shadows you cast are of enslaved women. Well, you know, it's you know, interesting you say that because my thinking has really changed on that topic. Um, it's evolved a lot because I think the question of who gets to tell whose story is really powerful right now. And so for a while I was thinking about, well, who would we want to remember? Like who should we be remembering instead of these generals? And so I was working with very, very moving daguerreotypes. For example, a woman who liberated herself from slavery and went to work as a cook in the Union Army that's a a heroine we ought to be attending to but as I began doing that work and thinking about that I realized like that wasn't really my story to tell you know that wasn't my story and I went back and I looked at the statues again and I looked at the plants and where I am now and again this is subject I mean that's what's exciting it changes I looked at the statues and I realized that and these are statues let me underline they're put up in the Jim Crow era they are not put up in like 1867 they're put up in a moment of deepening racism and they are meant to signal to people what the values of that local community are which is with the Confederacy so they're really terrible and I noticed two of the three statues were of women they were of grieving women Um, One statue has, you know, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, but the other two were about women's loss. I think that's really interesting. One of them even has this Latin tag on the plinth that says words, not deeds. Like women are words, men are deeds. I'm like horrified. Um, That's just not where I can go. So now I'm working with, well, what does it mean for me as a white person to deal with the legacy of white people putting up these statues? And what do I think about this gender stuff? And basically, I think women's losses in wartime are terrible, as are men's, but two wrongs don't make a right. And to me, using women in this way is a kind of cover. You know, like, who's going to say no to a grieving mother? I'm like, watch me. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I understand it, but it's a cover, right? Because the that grieving southern flower of womanhood is a cover for the very evils of slavery. That's what that's doing. And so 
I don't I want to call that out. I don't think that's that's a message we can live with. I mean the statues are gone as I said, but I still think attending to that matters. So now I'm using I'm just beginning using sort of referencing textiles in the metalwork as a way of referencing women's work. Don't know how well it's going to work. Not sure it's going to kind of come off, but um I just finished one that I sort of wove this very, very, very fine fiber around a wire structure of a plinth as a way of reflecting on the fact that it's not there anymore, but that when it was there, it was it was speaking about women in a way that I think we want to think about. I mean, women were not innocent of slavery. You know, they were in it up to their necks just as much. And so being clear about that, I think, is really important. That's that's just amazing. And, you know, we sometimes tell stories, we see how they land, and if they don't land... Exactly. You you modify them, you create another story. And all you're, all of this you're doing in metal. I mean, this is just mm-hmm. amazing. And you've been involved in some jury shows as well and, and collaborated with a number of other metal makers as I you know, understand it in Baltimore Jewelry Center so and there was a, a, a very story-led show that you did called Cities of Steel Cities of Rust what was what was that about and what was the story related sort of aspect of it oh thank you for asking yeah I love that project um, so this was a collaboration between a group in Pittsburgh and this group in Baltimore at the Jewelry Center where I work and we were talking and we came to realize that Pittsburgh and Baltimore are much more similar than you might think on the surface of it you know we're on the coast they're inland blah blah but actually we have a lot of things in common and so we decided to kind of foster collaboration between these two groups by having each artist um, there's sort of like eight in each city choose a site that mattered to them personally and start to make a work of art about it and then exchange with the artist in the other city who would then finish their work And that's really hard for an artist to start something and not have complete creative control, but it's actually really good for us also. And so it was really exciting to see to come together. The piece that I did that I started definitely had a narrative to it, had a story. I chose a building that I used to drive by every morning when I drove my son to the early years of high school before I trained him to take the public bus. Um, And he never talks in the car. He's a very chatty guy, but lifetime vow of vehicular silence just does not talk in the car. So I was really surprised one day when out of nowhere we're driving past this building and he says, you know, that'd be a great hideout for the zombie apocalypse. And I thought, okay, (laughs) like I've just bought a platform ticket to the inside of my kid's mind. And it's not a happy thought. (laughs) Um, Really not. But um, so I looked at the building more carefully and we started speculating about what it was. Turned out it was an old ice factory from the days of ice boxes. Has this really medieval look to it. It's really heavy. It has buttresses. And so when I was looking for a site, I was sort of playing with that because it had this immense personal meaning to me. And then I started to research the site and I got even more interested because it turned out that it actually had a lot of relevance for today in my mind, which is that this whole ice factory thing started in 1912 when the monopoly company that like owned the ice up and down the East Coast, it used to rent a river or rivers in Maine to cut the ice in the winter and the river didn't freeze that year. So it's like an early moment of climate change. Um, it's really a moment for us. And they realized they had to manufacture ice because, you know, ice boxes, you needed that cube of ice twice a week. 
And so they couldn't harvest it. They had to make it. And so there's these two big places in Baltimore where they made it. And then they stored it. And the building I was working on was the storehouse. And it's big and heavy because ice is big and heavy. And they needed really thick walls to hold it and thick walls to keep it cool all year. So the more I worked on it, the more stories that I saw in the place and the more excited I was. And so the whole exhibition has these 16 works, each work made by two artists in exchange, and all kinds of stories emerged about the person that I worked with made something that referenced the bridge in Pittsburgh that she saw from the window of her freshman dorm room. So it has real power that way. It's evocative for her of a particular moment in her life. And so it was full of stories like that that I felt spoke to what our cities are and how we relate to them. So I was really excited about seeing it all together. That's amazing. It's really That's nice. amazing. Yeah. I love this um, idea of the collaborative story as well. That's, yes. that's fantastic. I was just yeah. thinking that, I mean, we see this all the time in theater, you know, particularly mm-hmm. musical theater. You've got the, 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 the composer, the lyricist, the book writer, um, we see it in business, really. I mean, we, we've seen it, Simon, in terms of the collaboration. And sometimes collaborating on stories is really, really hard. Because there's these two... It's so hard to blend the two points of view to come out with one story. Um, but essential sometimes. But that's that's fascinating, Mary. Um, is that show going to travel further than where it where it's, is now? Or... Well, it's going to be in Pittsburgh in January um, at the Center for Contemporary Craft. So I'm really excited because I want the Pittsburgh side to see it as well. And so I'm excited about that. I will say about collaboration, it is challenging, but it's also incredibly productive. I mean, I find I have really, like, a really powerful source of ideas is conversations. And that you can come out somewhere that neither of you had foreseen, but there's an energy and a kind of sparking off one another that can, you know, can be incredibly productive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, look, this has been great, but we, we have one final question and this, this is a, a fun one. I <laughs> hope. Um, do you have a favorite story and can you tell us why that would be a favorite story? Well, I do have a lot of favorite stories. As you can see, I love stories. Um, I think that one of the forms of stories that I particularly love is jokes, because jokes are like distilled stories. They're like tiny little nuggets of stories. And I don't tell jokes. You know, you'll remember my dad was a classic joke teller of the sort of three men walk into a bar kind of joke. I've never done that kind of joke. Um, And I was actually sort of fascinated that this was a thing. But um, I have done some work on 17th century jokes, and they're not funny anymore, I'll tell you right now. <laughs> but I will share one of those with you, and I'm going to translate this into like how I would tell it now, because the older language doesn't always translate so well for everybody. Um, so this is a joke. It's in a joke book. I've, I get to work, read joke books for work sometimes. Um, so it's a joke about um, a couple who've just got married. It's the wedding night. And he says to her, you know, it's a really good thing you held out when I promised marriage to get you into bed. And you held out. You said, no, no, we have to be married. Because, you know, I probably would have ran away. And, you know, I would have gone to bed with you and ran away. And she says, yeah, I thought so. 
I've been cheated that way before. That's great. Well, you know, like full disclosure here, Mary and I are cousins, so I'm just grateful that her favorite story was not something um, really scandalous <laughs> about my past. Um, but I, I, we are so grateful to have had you on this story yeah. conversation today. Um, I think you've you've given us a lot to think about, and we are just fascinated with everything you do and look forward to. So the, the working title of the next book is Before Sex Ed? Um, yes, and it's just a working title. I'm really not sure yet, but yes. No? All right, well, we'll be interested to hear about that um, and promote it when, when it comes out. But Mary, thank you very, very much, and uh, have a great rest of your day. You too. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it a lot. Oh, wow. Amazing. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, our, our listeners, our listeners probably want to know a little bit about what we think they could take away from this to help yeah. within the context of business. So let's, let's try to unpack what we, what we, we heard in Mary's uh, session. Fantastic. Great idea. So, um, I think one of the things that came out in, in for me was the notion that a story can help you see a different perspective. Um, or, or, mm. or maybe can a story, your crafting, help others see you more yeah. clearly or, or see your perspective clearly? Um how about, did that resonate with you or? I, I mean, absolutely. And, and this is something I think that happens all the time when you're dealing with business storytelling, you know, or stories or, or narrative. You want, you want to help others understand your message clearly. And I think that was what came through in Mary's work is that um, when you're using story, they are a tool to either help you see something you didn't see before or you weren't you weren't aware of before or to help others see a side of you that perhaps they're not um familiar with right and and that idea of familiarity um one of the things mary talked about was she's she researches subjects that she thinks she knows and suddenly you know she comes across something and she says wow i i didn't know this person this research subject at all and actually the flip side of somebody understanding your story as a business person is really the idea that sometimes in business I think we think we understand our customers Mm. but you know when we really get involved in the business relationship we we suddenly realize that we we come across something that we're unfamiliar with and and you know it's 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 the bookends of that whole idea of understor- understanding the 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 customer or the client's story as well i mean i think that they're they're two different sides of the same coin i i think i was going to say i think another thing that i took away was how mary talked about um, or how people should think about using metaphors and associations as shortcuts, you know, particularly within a, uh, a cultural context. And that doesn't mean, you know, we're not talking about stereotyping here. You're talking about a metaphor to replace 
a complex idea. I mean, we, I like, I love the, the discussion about the fact that you know rats give you an automatic feeling of, of disgust because they're vermin, but also the fact that deer are vermin in the right setting. So if you are going to use metaphors, they have to be contextual. Exactly, exactly, contextual and and right for the audience that you are trying to address. Um, mm. You know, she, Mary talked to, uh, in her discussion of her work as a an, a metal artist, um, and specifically around the whole idea of the city of rust, city of steel project, the notion of collaboration. Um, and you know that collaboration leading to a richer story. But one of the, the one of the things she said was you know, you have to acknowledge that collaboration is hard. Mm. And I think that when we try to articulate our brand story, um, we need to understand that there are various voices within the organization that are trying to tell that story and to tell that story um, effectively, but also collaboratively. I mean, someone, I, I know you've done work around helping brands tell their stories to make sure that everybody in the organization is collaborating to tell it well yeah i mean that's you know it's a, it's, it's a, a a trite thing to say but the whole singing from the same hymn sheet thing does matter and that if you you know if you're going to tell a powerful story it has to be one that is shared across all parts of the organization i think the the, uh, the final thing that um I, I think people should listeners should take away is that just to consider whose story it is you're telling. Do you have the right to tell the story? I mean, you know, the stories that organizations should be telling about themselves or about their customers need to be authentic and, and genuine and they need to come from that brand's personal experience. I think that will build greater trust with an audience rather than trying to tell a story that doesn't belong to them. You know, I, I think, you know, Mary's comments about the the statue project it's very important but it's also about is this my story to tell is this really what i should be doing what's your perspective on it and i think that's really important who who do you have the right to tell that story exactly and i think in business you know it's 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 the expression of empathy for your customer um and and you don't necessarily sit in your client or your customer's shoes but that you 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 tell your own story with the the empathy that that can develop trust um, around how your story fits into theirs really. Um, so I, I hope I hope our listeners got as much out of it as we did, and yeah. uh, and of course we have upcoming podcasts in the in the weeks to follow and we hope listeners will tune in again.